Hey everyone, thanks for listening. Before we get started on today's show, I wanted to let you know that affiliates of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke have published three new books that you'll want to check out. If you go to the Cook Center website, socialequity.duke.edu, under our research tab, you'll find links to a revised edition of From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, The Pandemic Divide, How COVID Increased Inequality in America, and A Dream Defaulted, The Student Loan Crisis Among Black Borrowers. These books are incredibly insightful and amplify our mission at the Cook Center to offer policy solutions to racial, social, and financial inequities. That website again is socialequity.duke.edu, and you'll find those books under the research tab. All right, let's get to the show. You can have a groundswell of support around something, but if you don't have the right people at the table, nothing happens. So great. Yay. Now everybody knows how hard it is to be a teacher, but what did that then translate into? You're listening to Voices in Equity, the official podcast of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. On our first podcast series, we're focusing on the pandemic divide, how COVID increased inequality in America. It's a collaborative book from faculty, many here at Duke, who are committed to shining a light on inequities and truly making a difference. Today, we continue our conversation on chapter 11 of the pandemic divide, the rebirth of K-12 public education, post-pandemic opportunities, written by Kristen Stevens, Keisha Daniels, and Erica Phillips. We have all of the authors of this chapter on this episode, and we're also joined by Sashir Moore Sloan, social studies teacher at Durham Public Schools. If you missed part one from last week, I recommend you go back and listen to that one before coming back here. On that episode, Sashir mentions the digital divide. And to start today, I asked Erica to explain more about what exactly the digital divide is and how people were affected by it. So I pulled something out of our chapter, if that's okay. And so once again, remember, we wrote this in our, actually our first iteration was, I think, June of 2020. And then our final edits were due October 2020. So when we were trying to define the digital divide, as it was being talked about in the news, there was actually no data available for who had computers and who didn't. So what we drew from was from the 2013 census. Then the Pew Research Center did a little bit of further detail. And they found that So once again, 2013, so at 2020, that was seven years prior, but that's what we had to work with. One in five teens didn't have reliable internet when they were at home. And that number increased drastically for low-income students. So that changed it to one out of three students whose parents earned 30,000 or less didn't have internet and or technology access at home. Um, And that is compared to less than one in 10 students who live in households that earn incomes of 75,000 a year. So that's really the digital divide where you're looking at less than 10% compared to 33% of students who do or don't have a computer and or internet. 
So that's the numbers that we were working with when we were writing this chapter and how we defined the digital divide. And so, you know, another divide I think that's, that you talk about is not just the digital divide, but almost the consequences. Um, the other divide we talk about is this achievement gap and the learning loss. And like you said, this chapter was written pretty early and there were a lot of projections, but what are you seeing, uh, Sashi, in your classroom? And also just what is, what is the data? What is the research showing us um, about this achievement gap and the learning loss? We're definitely trying to um, have different ways to catch students up. That's something that our leadership team um, here at my school, they're definitely um, have made great strides to fix any type of learning loss. Um, we have like interventions built in during different parts of the day. We have like a period called discovery and it focuses, some people have like a, um, a reading based uh, discovery or a math based discovery that can serve as an intervention period for those who may need it. We also are making sure our AIG students we're meeting their needs as well. So Everybody has had learning loss, whether, you know, whether they're an AIG student, um, an EC student, ESL learner, um, everybody has had that learning loss during this time. So we're definitely just trying to make sure whether it's through um, various uh, computer programs that are purchased to support learning like iReady, Reading Plus, things like that. Um, we, and we have um, groups that are come in, teachers that are coming in and actually putting different interventions in place for students to just meet them where they are and try to um, close those gaps as much as possible. Additionally, when our, the first time we wrote this, we did our projections based on something called Summer Slide. So there's already some sort of learning loss when students do not receive any sort of enrichment over the summer months. However, we did get a little bit more updated information um, from McKinsey when we got to add additional information to this chapter. And so they were counting learning loss from March 2020 to January 2021, when that was almost all digital learning. And their numbers showed that. Black students had an average of 10.3 months of learning loss, Hispanic students 9.2 months, and low-income students at 12.4 months of academic learning loss, whereas um, white students was only six months. That's one of the things while reading the chapter that I found very interesting, and it's, it's just heartbreaking to see. I, I, I think the work that you all are doing it super important and putting that information to the forefront because you hear it um, as an educator, but when you see the statistics and you start bringing in that scientific evidence, it, it, it speaks volumes and it's something that um, needs to be put in the forefront um, so we can, you know, make changes to fix that. I think uh, a lot of the research on the actual learning loss is starting to sort of become solidified now. I think March and April of this year, 2022, saw kind of a series of different reports. I mean, one of the problems in collecting these data has to do with the fact that students weren't tested in some things. And so, you know, during the pandemic, and I believe that we, they've seen the greatest learning loss in math, more so than reading. 
Uh, so what interventions are coming as a result of this um, new information about the extent of the learning loss? And I'm seeing a lot of articles about intensive tutoring, whatever that is. Uh, I don't know how you define intensive tutoring. If it's, you know, like five hours at a time or, or how they define it. But I would imagine that there's going to be, for schools anyway, hopefully some some funding available that they might have to apply through like a grant or what have you, or even funding to states to support these intensive tutoring programs. So it, it'll just be interesting to see um, kind of the remedies uh, that are put in place. But what I hope is that we don't focus solely on remediation. I think to keep students engaged in the learning process, you can't just focus on their deficits. You have to focus on their strengths. You have to focus on their interests. And we have to provide opportunities for them to engage in learning experiences that they can be successful in, that are low stakes, that are engaging, enjoyable, that uh, inspire their curiosity and creativity. If it just becomes rote, kind of drill and practice, drill and practice to, to get the skills that you lost, we're going to lose a lot more students. And not because of the loss of, of the learning loss, but because we've just bored them to death. <laughs> they just don't see the point uh, in being told that, oh, you know, you're not smart enough. So. And that's actually something, too, that, you know, I was thinking about this idea of everything that we tend to focus on, which is the academic loss. But I think wrapped up in that are so many other losses that compound the academic loss. And I think, you know, one of the questions that uh, we were hopefully going to talk about, so now I'll just kind of get us started on it, was reflecting on those immediate complications or immediate ramifications of COVID and schooling, which is the academic piece. But I see it as, as uh, like a larger contextual issue. Like you can't talk about the academic learning loss without also talking about the lack of motivation that came out of so mm -hmm. many students during COVID. Um, you know, whether it was, I can't do this anymore, or I'm just not engaged. I don't like the Zoom format for some students, right? Because we also know that some students actually thrived under a different type of academic pressure, so to speak. But the affective piece that Kristen was talking about earlier too, that's wrapped up in the academic. You, If you, you know, aren't engaged or excited, maybe you're not going to want to show up for Zoom classes. I think along with Sashir mentioning all of the other historical and cultural and, and race relations that came out of that time, it impacted the academic issues because so many, you know, black and brown and Asian families saw this continual loss of trust in processes around healthcare and science and confirm suspicions, you know, of systemic racism and neglect, abuse of power. And so all of those things, right, as I see Sashir nodding her head, like as a historian, you know, are compounded along with, and you didn't do well in school. Okay, right? Let me have something. I was dealing with a lot. And I think that's, that is 
added to an increase in anxiety. And so we can't try to fix one without also paying attention to everything else. And schools, when we're at our best, we do that really well. We support students with social emotional learning and the academic stuff. And it's been hard to get back at our best, you know, since COVID. That is one of the biggest challenges that I've actually seen with kids coming back into the building. Like we transitioned back in the building last year and just getting kids motivated and getting acclimated to being back in the building. That that lack of engagement was definitely there. And there's something that we have to work on and respond to. How do we get kids excited about learning? I mean, with middle school and different age groups, sometimes, you know, they're they're like, ah, school, you know, they don't like anything dealing with school. But um, that's something that and mental health, too. Um, like I did a little poll in preparation for this podcast with my students. And I had about 107 uh, students answer a question. I said, how uh, how would you like to have Wellness Wednesday back again? Um, over 75% of the students want it back. And they would talked about how it helped them. And they talked about, you know, some of their challenges of staying focused, staying motivated. So that was a big piece for them. And some of them are still struggling with that. I bet teachers want it back too, if you probably did that survey. Yes, we <laughs> I'm sure they yes, do. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was a moment to, you know, you're not teaching five classes in a day. You have time to grade papers and, uh, you know, just try to prep and get life together. I don't think people realize how many meetings and things we deal with in a day. Sometimes you barely have time to go to the bathroom and eat all your lunch. Um, it's, it's so much to do. And um, that day would help teachers and students. <laughs> Definitely. Well, I think that we focused a lot on the health and well-being of students. But I think it's also important to focus on the health and well-being of teachers because that was an an enormous charge that you had to pivot, you know, to this completely new way of teaching. And, And not only that, we've lost a lot of teachers as a result of the pandemic. And it's and hiring people for those positions has been challenging. And so teachers that are in these schools are doing double duty. They're picking up the workload of some of the, you know, the the teachers who aren't there anymore, covering classes during their planning time. So I think it's very important if we don't pay attention to the health and well-being of our teachers, we're going to see even more attrition in the teaching uh, profession, which we do not need. And students do not need. Students do not need the churning of new faces especially some of our most vulnerable students who need stability. We need uh, to pay teachers more and we need to, to recognize the professionals that they are. They need to have a voice at the table when policies and decisions are made. And let me tell you, if teachers designed schools, our educational system would be 110% better. And one of the things also, like, I don't think, American society realizes how undervalued, you know, underpaid and overwhelmed a lot of teachers are speaking to what you uh, just mentioned, um, Kristen. And we like I have a second job (laughs) like you have to do that in order to make ends meet. So trying to juggle all your responsibilities as a teacher 
Like, you know, I I jokingly tell people as a teacher, you have to have a side hustle uh, because we are not paid well, particularly in the state of North Carolina. I love this state, but the pay is horrible for teachers, uh, police, firemen, EMT workers, first responders in general. The pay is terrible. And a lot of people have to have second jobs. So, you know, if you're trying to make ends meet on top of being attacked and being told you're not you know, you're doing this or, you know, you're trying to, you know, brainwash my child and all those things. Of course, people are going to leave the profession. And that's something that needs to be fixed. And, and I, and I, I, if I could, I would be a rich woman if I could um, count on my, like on my hand or whatever, how many times I've said, I wish people in DC, in Raleigh could come in my classroom do what I do, and then they w- there will be different policies in place. And walk into any classroom, and then there will be different policies in place. Because since they don't understand what it's actually like to be a teacher, and a lot of people don't realize, like you can't. A lot of times, you don't have time to eat your lunch or go to the bathroom. They like there's so many things going into being a teacher, and the amount of things you have to do and multitask, <laughs> like. People don't understand that. And um, I love that part about agency in this chapter, uh, about having a voice at the table and having um, community activists that um, are in support of us. So that's definitely important. And I think it felt like for a moment, for a hot moment, when so many parents were saying, oh, my gosh, I can't believe teachers do this. I have four kids. I could never be a teacher. Like it felt like the the scale was kind of tipping in our favor for just a minute, right? It felt like the wave of teachers don't get the, you know, um, admiration and the money they deserve. And then it just fell flat. Like it didn't go anywhere. And I think, again, that that speaks to you can have a groundswell of support around something, but if you don't have the right people at the table, nothing happens. So great. Yay. Now everybody knows how hard it is to be a teacher, but what did that then translate into? And that's where good policies come in into place. We did not have enough momentum there and people at the table who should be there, teachers, students, parents even, to really make things happen, I think, for for the profession. That's a great point. It felt like a brief moment in the sun where it's like, yes, oh, yes, y'all are finally understanding. And then it it just switched back (laughs) to the same old, same old. So definitely. Yeah, Sashia, I think you're right. The things, you know, coming back to teaching in person, we all of a sudden so quickly forgot the perspective of teachers and forgot the perspective of other people working in schools and on the front lines and in essential jobs that we got a glimpse into during the pandemic and gained a new level of respect for. But that went awash when we tried to return to the old normal. I I remember returning to my school in person last fall and I was a special education teacher and interventionists were the first ones to be thrown into substitute positions. So students with learning disabilities were not getting their services and I was in the meantime teaching science and music to students, you know, who didn't have a consistent teacher in that classroom. And and that puts students with learning disabilities and students in those other classrooms both at a huge disadvantage. But to your point, you know, there's a reason that there is a, a shortage. And I think part of it is just holding schools to the same standard that there was before. 
when this whole time we've known that the education system is very broken. And so, and I think we've, you know, we've outlined that so far. And I really, I would love to shift to the path forward because we don't want to hold ourselves to this, this standard to the old normal because it was broken and it wasn't working and it wasn't serving students and teachers and families and communities in the ways that it should have. So what, you know, the, the ideal path forward is towards education equity for all. And there's some measurable steps that you talk about in this chapter. I'm sure there's steps beyond that that we, you know, can talk about, but what does it look like to have, you know, real reform in education? I know you had a line that said, you know, there's so much reform and so little change. We have great ideas, but implementation, there's a break. And I think part of that is the absence of the teacher voice at the table that we've noted. But what does reform look like and and what are the roadblocks and how do we turn our path forward? Big question. <laughs> I think that there has to be a true commitment and action that focuses not just on surface changes, but changes that go beneath kind of the surface of traditional practices and that really do get at the heart of uh, systemic racism, right, uh, in schools and then also just outside of schools where where money, you know, uh, is an impact, economics is an impact. There are just so many intersectional systems that occur around schooling. It's hard to pinpoint just one, but this idea that, um, you know, we can throw money at a problem never works. There has to be much more. Now, money doesn't hurt, but it has to have true commitment and action behind it. And I think we also have to get out of this idea that change is going to happen overnight, right? We we know that there's there's some, you know, research around how long it takes to go through a change process. And I feel like, again, as a profession, we seem to always be on the, well, you guys can, you guys can pivot. Y'all can turn that around in a year and a half. You guys can do this right overnight, so to speak. And because as Shashir mentioned earlier, we're educators, we get it done. Like we're the people who go out there and do these things. And so sure, we'll take on a challenge, but that's not realistic. True change takes time and understanding that it is a process has to be in the forefront of everything. We cannot recover or even revise and innovate from COVID two years out. We will be doing this for a long time. And and while that should be okay, we also have to have the commitment and the action and the money behind it to really make change work and to make it innovative, not just do the same things that we've always done. I think part of it, too, piggybacking on what you said, Keisha, is that our policymakers need to have the will to want things to change. So I think that they're very um, vocal about pointing out flaws and coming up with things that they think, like you said, will be a quick fix. But do they really have the will and the desire for things to actually change? And I think for some policymakers, they do, but I think there's some that don't. You know, there's something called um, maintained inequality, you know, and I think 
whether we like it or not, I think there's people that are intentionally not interested in creating equitable experiences for our students. As long as their family or their children um, are getting what they need, they really don't have an interest in other people's children, I guess. So they have to have the will and the desire. And like Keisha said, it can't be a quick fix because what's happening is we're just churning and changing what we do from year to year. It's a new program this, a new program that, spending all this money, but never sticking with anything long enough to really ascertain if it's beneficial or if it's working. If it doesn't work, you know, in a year, then let's move on to the next thing. Uh, and it's a waste of money. It's a waste of resources. It's a waste of teachers' time. And a lot of times teachers are, the illusion is given that teachers are a part of the decision-making when it comes to adopting curriculum. But decisions, uh, teachers can recommend one thing. I think, oh, I think this is great. And then the district will go with something else. So I, I think there's just sort of, <laughs> in reality, teachers aren't the decision-makers. And the people that are closest to the students in the classroom who know the students and are experiencing and see you know, firsthand what's going on with their students, they should be the ones who know more than anybody else what's going to be most relevant and is going to connect to the students that they serve in their classroom. Not somebody sitting over in central office and certainly not anybody in our state legislature. I'm probably going to get lots of negative emails from people after this. <laughs> I probably will be in trouble too. But... Uh... <laughs> But uh, one of the things I also wanted to add to that is um, in order to have the equity and um, the anti-racist education in our schools that we need, also, we're going to have to address the, the racism in society. We have to address institutional racism outside of education as well as within education, too, um, addressing implicit bias. And um, also, I think that needs to happen as um, we're preparing teachers as well, because, um, you know, th that's an important piece. But um, we really have, I don't, I, and this is just my opinion, we have not truly grappled with racism in this nation, in my opinion, the way we should have. And until that happens, we won't see these changes across these institutions that, um, that support our nation, including education. So I think that's an important piece there. There's tons of things with education, just thinking off the top of my head, suspension data. If you look at that across the board, how black and brown children are, in, uh, are being impacted with that. I was surprised to see something as young as you have kids being uh, put out of preschool for suspension data. Like I knew it was an issue of middle school and high school, but when I uh, dug a little deeper and did some research, I'm like, this is even happening in preschool. That's a problem. And even the resegregation of schools, like people don't want to talk about that. Well, what's happening with these charter and private schools? You have a lot of people leaving public schools and what is happening there? Um, so that that is something we have to address in our education system. I think it's important. Absolutely. I think, you know, targeting these, you know, talking about tracking, talking about, you know, disproportionate suspensions and expulsions and the school to prison pipeline. And these are all concepts that are very real and existed before COVID hit. And so, you know, 
we've exposed them and now is, you know, an opportunity to take measurable steps in the right direction. But, you know, Kristen, I think you kind of named, you know, something that you wrote in the chapter that's, that said the public isn't in agreement as to the purpose of education. What do you think the purpose is considered to be? What, what right now is the public considering the purpose of education to be? And what do we rather think the purpose should be? My answer to this question changes, I think, depending on the day you ask me. You know, the the pat answer is so that we have citizens who can be productive and can contribute something, you know, to our country or to the world or what have you. But I think really fundamentally, the the purpose is to create thinkers. I, I think we focus a lot on content acquisition and content is important. But content was more important probably hundreds of years ago when you didn't have the internet and you couldn't just like in a minute, you know, with a handheld device, look up something that you wanted to know more about. Um, I mean, I taught during the days when you had a set of encyclopedias in your classroom. You don't even need to have those anymore. But the one thing that you really can't get on the internet is how to think and how to think critically. And we need good thinkers for decision makers. We need good thinkers to be diplomats. We need good thinkers to innovate. And so in terms of that, I, I would like to see more of a focus on pedagogy that fosters critical and creative thinking in students. And you use content to sort of practice those skills, but the focus, the, the balance of the focus, I think, needs to be either evened or a little bit more weighted towards the the uh, cognitive process development going on rather than content acquisition. Because what happens is that students memorize content for a test and then a year later, they don't remember it anymore. But if you can teach them thinking processes, something that they can apply to anything, regardless of what they decide to do, and you practice that over and over again from kindergarten all the way through school, that's going to become innate right? It's not going to be something they forget. So I think the purpose is to create better thinkers because better thinkers are going to solve a lot of these problems that we've been talking about today. I don't want to sound cliche because this is definitely a sentence that teachers say a lot, but I would say my number one goal of education would be developing the whole child or the whole person. I was really successful in school. Like academically, I could do really whatever you asked me to do. But then as an adult, I had to pay thousands of dollars to learn how to identify and work through my emotions. And it would have been really cool if schools taught me how to do that. And I think that that's something that we've been able to encounter and experience here throughout the pandemic is it brought mental health and more than just content is important in these students' lives. Let's teach them about social-emotional skills. Let's give them space to be able to talk about that as well, in addition to content. And then sort of what I hinted at at the beginning of the podcast of like scaffolding skills that helps you succeed in your future, like teaching things like executive functioning would be really important. So teaching soft skills and social emotional skills in addition to content and integrating it all so that we're not assuming that parents are teaching these things or they're getting them from something else just trying to incorporate that into the day 
for students to be able to have what they need to be able to succeed in their future. And success doesn't just mean I'm succeeding at my job. I was doing great at my job, but I was still having a hard time in my personal life. Um, And so success doesn't just mean that I'm good at school, I'm good at work. It also means that I am a functioning human being who can feel my emotions and have great interpersonal relationships as well. I want to revise my answer now and add that not only thinking is important, but I think teaching students to be empathetic, uh, to be able to understand, really understand different perspectives around issues. And I'm, uh, the reason why this comes to mind, because you were talking about the whole child, but also just look at our world right now. Look at some of the leaders in these countries around the world. It's kind of scary. And so I would hope that the school system could play a big part into um, helping students develop sort of that empathy so that you wouldn't have these leaders who are doing so much harm, you know, across Or have the world. to read off a cue card. I'm sorry for what happened to you all. Well, on a good note, I'll tell you, I had a great meeting with a student uh, at Duke who's interested in the secondary teacher prep program. And I was so super excited um, a young black male and we don't have enough young black male teachers or black male teachers. They don't have to be young. Right. But, um, he asked me a real hard hitting question. He said, you know, I, I really want to be a teacher, but can you ensure that I'll be able to teach in a way that doesn't replicate how I was taught? And I was like, oh boy, now that's the million dollar question. You, you think I like can control these things. But in that conversation, what he was really looking for was hope. He was really hoping that I would be able to kind of see the future and, and give him this landscape of a different type of classroom experience student teacher experience, education, uh, like attainment, attainment experience that was different from him. And he was kind of similar, like to what Erica, you were saying, he was like, I was good in school, but I didn't feel like my teachers liked me. I did well enough to get into Duke, but I couldn't really tell you that I loved learning. He's like, I just did what I was supposed to do. No one really tapped into my creativity and my interest. And, and so he went on to just tell me about all these experiences of how he, it came away for him, not really liking school and education, but he kept doing it, right? He kept forging ahead. He kept just being a great student. And he's like, and now I'm at Duke and I really want to be a teacher, but I'm afraid that I'm just going to do the same thing that happened to me. I'm just going to tell students, you know, I want you to just do your homework. And, and he's like, so will your program help me with that? I'm like, sure. (laughs) But then I also know that when he gets out there, he's going to have to find the school that's going to allow him to do all of these amazing creative things where he's cultivating thinkers and not just doers. That's hard. That's really hard to confront that we still have so many kids who are doers and not thinkers. Yeah, they just want to check the boxes. What is it that I need to do to get an A? Okay, this, 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 I've done it. You know, nothing above and beyond uh, that. Yeah, and I unfortunately think that 
the pandemic increased that because students got in places where they could perhaps disengage on a Zoom screen and just do homework, get right answers, and that was maybe in some cases all that was expected of them. And um, I, so I don't think that the pandemic helped kids to really be thinkers. <laughs> it, it was difficult for everyone, but I think that was one of those uh, ramifications that um, we're still now as, as educators trying to work kids out of. And that's really hard. Keisha, I was going to say um, also tell your student that Gandhi quote, be the change you want to see in the world. You, sometimes you have to do that. Like I, I had, a great social studies teacher. And I was lucky to have him. And his name is Christopher Evans. I, he is the reason why I'm a social studies teacher right now. I had an amazing teacher. I had him ninth and 12th grade, but I also had some teachers in between that, you know, wasn't always what it should have been. And I remember being that student that always say, well, my family, I learned this. And I, and I remember being um, a young African-American girl, not seeing herself in the classroom. And that's one thing I said to myself when I when I do become a teacher, I'm going to make sure my kids see themselves in their in the classroom. I'm going to make sure all voices and perspectives are pointed out and um, and teach my kids to appreciate that and to think critically, detect bias, have those life skills. Why is this source credible? Whose voice is left out of this source that we're looking at here? Who do we see? Who don't we see? So that's something. That I do. I had luckily I had a wonderful example, and then I had a, a whole bunch of people that weren't great examples of that. And I tell my students, hey, I didn't learn this when I was in middle school or high school. I had to major in history in college to um, hear this. I am going to make sure that you know this in middle school, right here, right now in eighth grade. So tell him he has to be that change he wants to see in the world. And I did tell him that, but it also sounds like maybe you want to be a mentor teacher. I think Kristen, we need to get her signed up. <laughs> I know. I was going to say, I was going to give another, another plug for our young scholars, but we had a student this past summer who uh, did an incredible uh, poster and, and talk about belonging and fostering belonging in the classroom and how, how much, you know, a student feeling like their identity and their background is honored in the classroom, whether, you know, if it's not mirrored by their instructor, maybe it's by the materials that are presented to them. And and not just feeling themselves honored, but also honoring the identities of the other people in the room. But the ways in which that pays it forward immensely and the ways in which it correlates with academic performance for students to feel like they are where they need to be and that they are appreciated for exactly who they are and where they stand. And, you know, we've been talking about mental health so much. It's also just the different ways in which we show up each day. And I think thinking about teachers you know, we need to honor the ways in which teachers show up and the ways in which students show up and the fact that that's going to be different every day. So I think these are, you know, all really great takeaways. And to Sashir's point, these should be on the keep list. We should keep, you know, a better social emotional learning. We should keep collaboration across teachers and communities when unprecedented changes happen. And we should keep the teacher perspective at, you know, the forefront when we are considering change. And ne right next to that is the student perspective as well. And, you know, I am grateful to be talking about hope and the path forward and, you know, striving for education equity. And, you know, I, I would love to hear from all of you just about 
the first question that opened up our chapter. What can the future of education be for every student? Where do we go from here? What does it look like? I have three simple words that have so much context, but I'm going to end with three simple words. I think education should be and can be for all kids flexible. It should be innovative and it should be individualized. Now, how we get there is another, that's another podcast, but those are my three words. And I feel really deeply that um, we have to be able to get to those places, to those three words. I think what I would add is that we want, um, that I, what I hope for education is that, like Sashir was saying earlier, that every student sees relevancy and value in being a lifelong learner and that they see themselves for their strengths and not their deficits. And that we realize that, you know, there's a lot of neurodiversity out there so we can all find our niche, whatever that might be. Although some Duke students complain that they feel pressure to find their passion area. Uh, there, you know, maybe it's too early to find your passion area. Maybe your passion area area changes every five years. I mean, I don't know. Just we are in a paradigm that you go to school, you make your way through, you major in something, and then you have a career, and then that decision is kind of finalized for you, right? Uh, you may go back to school or what have you. But I think we need to stop thinking about sort of this this sequence of events that we go through is the same for everybody. And that once you decide on something, you're stuck with it, you know, for the remainder of your life. So I think flexibility, what you were saying is a part of that about really allowing people to make choices about what they want to do, how they want to create maybe their own major. I really like that idea. I wish we did more of that, that they don't get pigeonholed too early into one thing, but they also realize that, their passions can change and their trajectory of their career, whatever that might be, can change. It's okay to change careers. I think we kind of look negatively on that. Like, oh, you can't figure out what you want to do. You know, you're hopping from job to this, to job to that. But I think that that's just part of The whole life should be an exploration, an exploration of what you're passionate about. What you're passionate about doesn't have to be the same thing. I mean, you may get Passionate about something, like you learn, you feel like you know everything about it and you're ready for another intellectual challenge, right? So I don't know if that effectively answers the question, but just kind of piggybacking on, I think the flexibility piece is big and finding and, and, and realizing that you don't have to, to make these decisions and you're stuck with them um, for the remainder of your life. I definitely agree with everything that's been said. Um, I think equity in anti-racist education should definitely be at the heart of that, the flexibility piece, and children seeing themselves in the classroom and uh, feeling comfortable enough to bring them whole, their whole selves to the classroom um, and, and, and making sure that we address that as educators. That's a huge piece, um, that social emotional learning piece making sure uh, we're continuing to understand that mental health is an important part, making space, making sure we have adequate school nurses and school counselors. One thing I forgot to mention that stuck out as I read this chapter is the, the average for school counselors uh, ratio to students. That was mind-blowing um, seeing that on paper. So that's that's another important piece. And then 
when we have enough staff, school nurses, school counselors, social workers, to address the needs of children, to help them be successful and well-rounded, then we are dealing with the whole child. So making sure that we have all the services they need, if they need hot spots, if they need food, they have access to those things. So being that community piece is important and it takes a village to raise a child. That's an old African proverb. And, and we just need to make sure our village is supporting children. And then finally, We'd like to see more teacher voices or people who have been in the classroom a little bit more than 30 minutes or have some sort of experience with public schools or aren't 75 years old to write the policies that impact the classrooms. Um, that way the, the policy doesn't show up in a classroom in basically a dead format, not knowing how it's going to come to life in a classroom. And the people who are going to be implementing them actually have some sort of say. Well, thank you so much again to Dr. Kristen Stevens, Dr. Keisha Daniels, Erica Phillips, and Sashir Moore-Sloan. So much information that we had to put it into two parts. And I truly appreciate your insight and the work that you do. The Cook Center is named after Samuel Du Bois Cook, the first tenured Black professor at Duke University who exemplified the pursuit of social justice and equality. With research focuses including social mobility, education, health, wealth, and policy, the Cook Center aims to develop a deep understanding of the causes and consequences of inequality and develop remedies for these disparities and their adverse effects. To order the book Pandemic Divide, How COVID Increased Inequality in America, head on over to socialequity.duke.edu. That's socialequity.duke.edu. The podcast music for Voices in Equity is written and produced by Karan Kareem. This podcast is edited and produced by Earfluence. I'm Maddie Braxick, and we'll see you again soon on Voices in Equity.